0: This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Weiner. Now it's time to talk about Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles with Melina Abdullah. She's a co-founder of the L.A. chapter, and she's professor of Pan-African Studies at Cal State L.A. She's appeared on MSNBC, CNN, ABC, PBS, and she's also a host of Beautiful Struggle on KPFK. Melina, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, the coronavirus, of course, is changing almost everything, including the jails, the courts, the police. We need to talk about all that. But before the virus hit, Black Lives Matter fought hard for two things on the ballot in Los Angeles. First of all, forcing the D.A. Jackie Lacey into a runoff. Uh, The news today is that you seem to have succeeded. Congratulations on that. Thank
1: you so much. We're definitely celebrating that victory. And you yourself got onto
0: page one of the papers before Election Day in a way that was not exactly what you had planned. Tell us what happened.
1: So, the day before Election Day, early Monday morning, we went to Jackie Lacey's home, which is in Granada Hills. So, it's um, kind of out from the city. And we've been there before. This is a standard kind of way that people protest um, uh, public officials. Um, I think the first time I went to a public official's home was with my labor union when we went to Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger's residence and did a protest there, right? And so, you know, public officials don't have the same expectations or shouldn't have the same expectations or rights to privacy as private citizens. That's why they're public officials. And so we went to her home. Um, at about 6 o'clock in the morning, a little before 6 a.m., and she had committed to having a public meeting in Black Los Angeles um, by December 1st. She did not have that meeting despite repeated calls for that meeting, so she committed to having that meeting to um, some of our comrades in Stonewall Democratic Club who stood in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and said, why won't you meet with black folks. Why are you coming to West Hollywood? Why won't you meet with black folks? Because we had some of the families of those who've been killed by police at their meeting and had been outreaching to them. And so she failed to follow through on her commitment to have this meeting. And so we said, well, let's bring the meeting to her. And so we actually chartered a bus. We put about uh, 30 of our folks on the bus and pulled up to her house and pulled out 30 chairs, 25, 30 chairs, and set them up on her front sidewalk um, and intended to force the meeting. Um, And so I said, well, let's invite her. And I did so kind of nonchalantly, not thinking much of it, walked to the door with um, one of our comrades from White People for Black Lives, and we one other person was um, filming. And rang the do- doorbell. So she has a ring doorbell system, which is kind of like a surveillance system. You can see who's at the door. You're on camera when you ring that bell. And she's very familiar with me and with all of us. We protest outside her office every single Wednesday. We've been protesting outside her office for two and a half years. Um, we even had a protest yesterday. So she knows me um, we've also had meetings and other interactions. It's not like she thought I was an intruder. So ring the doorbell, um, and she actually had two doorbells, so we ring both of them twice, um, you know, ring them, pause for a minute, ring them again, and we hear something at the front door, and it sounds like a gun being cocked. but Uh-oh. I thought I was being paranoid, so I look at my comrade Dahlia, and I said, oh that doesn't sound good, but I was kind of <laughs> half joking yeah. and the door flings open and it's her husband with the first thing out the door is this huge handgun pointed directly at us, kind of panning the three of us. Um And then I don't know what came over me. I just said, good morning. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. um, everybody can see it. It went viral. The video went viral. And, um, he says, get off my porch. And I said, um, can you let Jackie Lacey know that we're here or something like that? Then he, he kind of trains the gun on my chest. Um, and we're in very close proximity, his fingers on the trigger. We had heard the gun being cocked. So we know it's loaded. I said, are you going to shoot me? And he says, I will shoot you get off my porch, I don't care who you are. And it was something along those lines, the exact details are on the video, right? The whole interaction lasted less than 30 seconds, but had, you know, of course, an enduring impact. I've never been threatened in that way in my life. And that's certainly not what we expected going to the home of a public official in protest, even if people don't agree with the protest, right? That's not the expectation of a protester.
0: And this was then front page news. The video went viral. And the next day, the L.A. Times had a second page one story, this one by Steve Lopez. And the headline was, quote, I will shoot you isn't a great campaign slogan for D.A. Jackie Lacey, close quote. That was Mm -hmm. on Election Day in Your goal was to uh, force her into a runoff, which, as we said, you've succeeded. Jackie Lacey is the, I believe, the only black woman ever elected district attorney in the United States. Why didn't Black Lives Matter support the black woman D.A. running for reelection in Los Angeles?
1: Well, she's not the first, the only black woman DA. So, you know, we have Marlon Mosby in Baltimore. There's a few others, Kim Fox in Chicago. However, you know, she is one of a few. It's really important that when we talk about representation, Lonnie Guineer writes about this all the time, um, and I think most poignantly in Tyranny of the Majority, when she talks about authentic versus descriptive representation. So, you know, we can have descriptive representatives, right? There can be black folks who um, are elected to office but represent their own personal ambition rather than representing the collective interests of black people. And that really doesn't do anything for black advancement. In our view, Jackie Lacey is a descriptive representative. She is not an authentic representative. She has not been willing to even meet with the families of those killed by police. She's been someone who's been backed by um, one of the most murderous, uh, the most murderous uh, police forces in the nation, including LAPD and L.A. County sheriffs, both of whom are her largest um, campaign contributors. So LAPD, um, uh, L.A. Police Protective League, which is their um, officer association, gave her a million dollars for her reelection um, ALADS, which is the association for the L.A. County sheriffs, gave her 850000 Um wow. and So this is, you know, who's backing her. So in the words of um, one of our um, most revered scholars and writers, Zora Neale Hurston, all skin folk and kin folk. So just <laughs> because she okay. happens to be black doesn't mean she represents black interests. So
0: we've been talking here about electoral politics, but Black Lives Matter is basically not uh, a, a voting group. Uh, what is, let's talk about your perspective on the relationship between protest and politics.
1: Black Lives Matter does believe in voting as a tool of liberation, but we also know that no group of people have ever voted themselves into freedom, right? It requires um, engaged action on the ground. So um, rather than moving from protest to politics, we believe in protest and politics. We will absolutely vote, but we're not giving up our right to protest and um, our duty, our sacred duty to protest. So the idea of being constantly outside of Jackie Lacey's office, we know that the reason that she was forced into a runoff is because of our ongoing and consistent protest. We know that protest is what raises issues, right? If we think about even the presidential race, um, many of the things that Bernie Sanders and other more uh, radical candidates were talking about were raised only because they had the power of people behind them, not only as folks who were going to the voter booth, but also as folks who were willing to call out injustice. And so um, in Black Lives Matter, what we believe in is um, the power of disruption, that we can't allow business as usual to continue when black people are being killed and targeted by the state. And so it's why we sometimes make people uncomfortable when we have a protest at a mall or a um, shutdown at a restaurant. You know, people are not happy with us, but that's the point. You shouldn't be able to have your peaceful, quiet brunch while people are being killed. And so um, that's um, at the hands of police. Right. And so that's why we continue to do the work in the way that we do, um, saying, yes, we're, we're voting. Yes, we're lobbying elected officials. Yes, we're putting phone calls into their offices. Yes, we show up in mass to public meetings and we will also, you know, engage in public protest.
0: And now we have the coronavirus. It's changing a lot about how criminal justice is practiced here. The L.A. Times reports that the LAPD made fewer arrests during the first 15 days of March. The L.A. sheriffs uh, have announced that their arrests have plummeted from a daily average of 300 to 60. The courts have closed What is your perspective on on all of this?
1: Well, I I think that that's great that arrests are down. We think that our communities are over-policed anyway. I think that it's important, though, as we're talking about what is really a health care and economic. I was very troubled by LAPD and L.A. County sheriffs asking for more money and by um, the announcement of the mayor that he'd be putting more police on the streets. And so it's really important that as we're looking at a healthcare and economic crisis, that we invest in those things that actually um, remedy those issues, right? So we need more public health workers, we need more EMTs, we need mental health providers, we need housing, right? When we're talking about uh, public health crisis, the idea that we have sixty thousand unhoused folks on our streets. And we're doing very little to provide new housing. I know there's a moratorium on evictions, but it's important to think about what does it mean that we still have these massive encampments, people living in tents and being criminalized for doing so, lack of hand-washing stations, right? What does it mean for our public health when we're refusing to house folks? And so I think that we need to um, be thinking about, and not just thinking about, but immediately responding to those needs. So I'm disturbed that um, Mayor Garcetti sees police as a remedy to public health and economic crises um, rather than investing in the spaces that we need to invest in. Just to be very clear, L.A. has enough housing to house everyone, right? There's um, ample... Um, units that are not being occupied. I'm loving what Reclaim LA is doing, where we have now nine families who've moved into a neighborhood in El Sereno publicly held vacant housing that's just sitting there and has been sitting there for almost 10 years. People are saying, no, it's not okay that we're unhoused. We're taking over these vacant units. And I think that there should be a public response that enables that to happen, that immediately fixes up Um, these vacant units for occupancy.
0: And some of the most vulnerable people to the coronavirus are are the people who are incarcerated.
1: Yes so we are part of Justice LA and so we put a call out Push LA has put out a call to um, pull back resources from police and put them into the things that actually make communities safe. We don't want to over criminalize neighborhoods, especially black, brown, and poor neighborhoods in this time of a health care crisis. Justice LA has also put out a statement saying that all pre-trial folks being held pre-trial should be immediately released from our jails. So we know that we have the, the majority of those who are in jail are in jail and have not been convicted of a crime. They're being held because they don't have the money for bail. And so those folks should be released Those folks who are um, convicted of nonviolence, violent crimes should be released. We're seeing what's happening nationally. We just had a case of COVID-19 in Rikers Island, and Mm. we know how quickly that will spread through jails and prisons. And so we want to decarcerate as much as possible. Most of the people who are in prison and jails are not there because they pose any viable threat to communities. And so if we're going to practice social distancing, we need to practice social distancing wholesale and say that our people who are being held behind bars need to be kept safe as well.
0: And this is part of the larger meaning of Black Lives Matter. It's not only people who have been killed by uh, the police. It's people who are incarcerated who have been convicted of crimes. Their lives matter, too.
1: Yes. Black Lives Matter believes all black lives matter, black queer lives, black trans lives, black incarcerated lives, black elder lives, all black lives matter. And we know that when black lives matter, it extends out to everyone else.
0: And I also want to ask about what are your priorities now that the coronavirus Requires the six feet of social distancing and encouraging people to stay home. The traditional forms of protest are are becoming more of a problem now. So how are you handling the coronavirus?
1: So what's incredible is we've had now two online forums. We had one on Tuesday, March seventeenth, called Black People in the Coronavirus. This is not a drill, and. We had incredible experts on talking about the coronavirus, trying to dispel some of the conspiracy theories that are rampant, talking about how black people can love and protect one another, engaging in mutual aid, that kind of thing. And that was watched by over a thousand viewers. Um, Wow. And it was a way for us to really reach beyond what we could have done Normally, we would have done it as an in-person gathering and maybe had a 100 folks, but we were able to reach over a 1,000 folks. Um, yesterday, we had our first virtual protest of Jackie Lacey, also on Instagram Live. So we had one person, because we didn't want to give up our in-person protest, one person mm-hmm. actually in front of the Hall of Justice at our normal time. It was the cousin of John Horton who was killed inside Men's Central Jail, she was there and she chanted by herself in front. But Mm -hmm. we also had 402 people join our Instagram live. Normally, our gatherings are about 50 people. And so we think that um, through technology coupled with, you know, ongoing personal check ins, because we can't, you know, completely substitute human care for, you know, we can't substitute technology for human care, um, but we're actually reaching a wider audience. And then finally, with people home, you know, we're encouraging people to do what we do, which is engage with the people that, you know, we still have to prepare for the November runoff. Right. So pushing Jackie Lacey into a runoff was goal number one. Goal number two is getting her out of office. We don't have a million dollars from LA Police Protective League or 850,000 from the Sheriff's Association, right? So what we have is the power of people. We're encouraging everybody to engage with their relationships, call people and tell them why it's important to vote Jackie Lacey out, send personal texts, have conversations. And so that's how we're continuing to engage. And, you know, the protest doesn't stop just because we're socially distant, there's other ways of doing the work.
0: Uh, Let me ask a little about you. What was your path to becoming an activist? Were you marching in the streets as a kid?
1: I was. I was marching in the streets as a kid. So I'm from Oakland, California, and I was born in the 70s, even though that uh, still makes me 29, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But, you know, being raised um, in what's you know most of us in Oakland call the panther cub generation right we're mm. all the children of activists right and my my parents weren't actually panthers but helped to support some of the survival programs um it we were raised in a in a space of consciousness and so i don't remember people often ask well what was your moment of coming into activism i was born into it it wasn't, um, there was no moment of coming into it. My mother was a community. Other mother um, regularly had children on her front porch teaching him to read, um, regularly providing resources for the community. My father was a labor organizer. He was a carpenter and um, very active in his union. I remember marching on picket lines with hard hats when I could barely walk. And so there was no moment of Consciousness raising or no moment of becoming an activist, um, I can say that Black Lives Matter is different for me than all of the rest. So while I was president protests my entire life, kind of um, taking on responsibility for organizing movement really happened for me um, I think in earnest with the birth of Black Lives Matter. I don't think any of us knew what. BLM would really mean, like we, um, after the murder of Trayvon Martin, when Patrice Cullors called us together, and to be clear, Black Lives Matter was born here in Los Angeles, um, so we were the first chapter. When we came together um, for our first meeting, just two days after Zimmerman had been acquitted in that murder, um, we pledged to build a movement, not a moment, and it felt right at the time and we were deeply committed at the time, but almost seven years later, I don't think that any of us knew how our lives would transform. And so I think that was a moment of transformation for me was um, making that commitment and really um, the lives of myself, my children and all the other organizers have changed dramatically in making that pledge.
0: Finally, a, a personal question: You work every day with mothers whose sons have been killed by the police. It's got to be very hard, you know. You've got to have be facing rage and you know despair every day. How do you keep going?
1: How do you how do you do it? Yeah, I mean, I work closely with families of those who've been killed, and so there's sons and daughters, and mothers and fathers, and. You know, and it's um heartbreaking and enraging um watching videos and hearing the stories um but the stories are also uplifting, so as we struggle for justice for Wakisha Wilson, who was murdered on march march twenty seventh of twenty sixteen um, it's really important that we um hear the stories of why are we fighting for Waukesha? So I love sitting and engaging with her mom, sister Lisa Hines and her auntie sister, Sheila Hines, who tells stories about, you know, why, why her nickname is Weebo because she had little legs that made her look like a Weebo wobble when she was <laughs> walking as a child. Right. And so they would say Weebo wobble, but she don't fall down. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so like hearing about, who these folks are, right? Meeting the children of Ridell Jones, um, Sakari and D'Artanian, who are her two children, are have become like um, extended family to me. And you know, there's a lot of love in the movement, right? Getting to know Keith Bercy's daughter, um, Kisana, who's a gifted violinist and on her way to college. And, um, his grandmother, who just is the epitome of what black motherhood and grandmotherhood is, um, I think that we draw strength from each other. There's a whole lot of love in the movement. And we've tried to build a movement that's loving and supportive. And so in the midst of our rage and our struggle and our pain, there's also each other. There's spiritual energy that we generate um, and Black Lives Matter is also, uh, we practice group-centered leadership, which means that, you know, there's hundreds of us, and some of us are really funny, and <laughs> some of us are artists. I think about Yasmin Monet Watkins, who's one of the best poets I've ever heard, right, giving her art, or people like Fumi Lola Fagbamila, who give her words, or um, – You know, we have a singing, cussing pastor, Evan Regie Bunch, who offers some of the best prayers you could ever imagine. And we find love and support and joy, even in the midst of pain.
0: Melina Abdullah, she's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter in L.A. Melina, thank you for all your work and thanks for talking with us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.